From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Not many people get struck by lightning, but for those who do, it can be a long road back. We have one man's electrifying tale. I still have terrible headaches. I had a lot of trouble with dizziness and that. They did a functional MRI and they found out the one side of my brain had pretty much got sizzled by it. Surviving the shock of lightning. Also, the bird everyone loves to hate. I don't know anybody that likes magpies. To wake up every morning to screeching magpies. I'm not sure I would hate them as much if it weren't for the fact that so many other people seem to hate them. Despite the fact pushy magpies, like their cousins the crows and blue jays, can offend some people, scientists say heckle and jekyll play an important role in nature. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Like many cities, Mexico City is strapped for water and for cash. Water treatment facilities and new supply pipes are badly needed, but they'd bust the municipal budget. Now a group of local inventors believe they've found a surprisingly simple and economic solution to the city's water woes. Conrad Fox has our story. You wouldn't think the 20 million residents of Mexico City would have to worry about their water supply. They get more than 27 inches of rain every year. But most of that rain never makes it to a tap. Instead, one of the most extensive drainage systems in the world channels it straight out of the city and to the sea. Mexico City gets very short, very intense rains during the summer. We've got to be very efficient about draining the water. And if we don't get rid of it quickly, not even the Lord our Father could prevent this city from flooding. That's Juan Carlos Wash, technical director of Mexico City's water system. Flooding is a serious problem in many parts of the city, but keeping streets dry is only half the challenge Wash's department faces. The other half is making sure residents still have enough to drink. And at the moment, he says, he's fighting a losing battle. 70% of our water comes from about 450 wells in the city. Some rain does recharge the aquifer, but not fast enough. In the south of the city, the water table is dropping about a meter a year. That's not good. In fact, it's extremely bad. No one knows for sure just how much water is left in the Mexico City aquifer, although most think a crisis is not far off. But what worries Wash is that as the aquifer depletes, concentrations of manganese and other dangerous elements make the drinking water almost unusable. And that's not the only consequence of a sinking water table. Exactly. And the building is coming up or the building is staying still? No, the, the building is coming up. On a busy sidewalk in the center of Mexico City, Jesus Esteba, a consulting engineer for the city works department, points out the crumbling pavement at the base of an old Art Deco building. Parts of the sidewalk have heaved upwards and passers-by are forced to step around the rubble. 
the problem, says Esteba, is related to what lies below the concrete of Mexico City. It's built over jello, what was once a lake. The ground is very soft clay and water. Most of Mexico City water comes from the same ground, and as it is pumped out, the ground dries out and sinks. In places you can have sinking up to a meter. The problem dates back to the early 17th century, when the Spanish drained Lake Texcoco, which covered much of the Valley of Mexico, to build their new capital soon after the conquest of the Aztec Empire. The valley has no natural drainage, and flooding was a serious problem even back then. To handle it, the Spanish built a series of large drainage canals. They worked for a time, but soil has since subsided, and the canals now run uphill. And moving soil also means broken pipes. The city loses an estimated 35% of its water to leaks, a nightmare for residents like Francisco Gasca. There never used to be a lack of water. I put it down to leaks in the streets. You can often see water bubbling up over the sidewalk. You spend eight or ten hours without water in the bathroom, it's horrible. But a group of Mexican entrepreneurs believes they have discovered a solution to the problem. And it happened by accident. One day in 1996, architect Nestor de Buen and a friend dropped by the lab of chemist Jaime Grau to examine new materials that Grau was developing, mostly paints and paving tiles. They noticed a small paving stone in the corner. When Germán asked him why he didn't want to show us that special piece, he said it doesn't work because water goes through it. So I told him, Jaime, you're kidding, that's impossible. So. He opened the sink, put the pizza under the water, and, and I felt like, you know, like the, my soul was going everywhere around the world. I told him, Jaime, you just discovered something that everyone around the world is looking for. Grau had hit upon a pervious, water-permeable concrete. It's similar to normal concrete, but has no sand. Instead, a special additive holds the gravel together in a strong but porous block, which some have likened to a big Rice Krispie square. De Buen convinced Grau to patent the product, and together they began selling it to the Mexican and U.S. construction industry, under the name Ecocreto. Ten years on, the name is hardly a household word, but its makers are convinced it could be the savior of places like Mexico City. When it shines, it's perfect. Ecocreto can be used for roads, parking lots, and other surface coverings, just like concrete or asphalt. But unlike traditional paving methods, water runs straight through Acocreto and back into the ground. If this was rain, it would have been the more than a year's worth of rain in, in this small area. Nestor de Buen pours a bucket of water on a parking lot made of Acocreto. The water disappears instantly, leaving behind just a small wet stain. In most cities around the world, we take the water from the aquifers, but we don't get it back. And in most places, when cities are built, what we are doing is putting on pervious surfaces above the, the ground so that water is not going to get back when it rains. One of the authorities, uh, when we started this the project, told us that if we could give the aquifers one-third of the rainwater back, we would solve the problem pretty fast. Others have already recognized Ecocreta's potential for alleviating the water crisis in Mexico City. The product has won several environmental prizes, including one from the World Resources Institute. Some Mexico City officials have promoted its environmental benefits, 
But although it has been used for some public roads and private constructions, its use hasn't been widespread. In most cases, the city has preferred the cheaper alternative, at least in the short run, of laying traditional concrete or asphalt for new roads. And it's far from ripping up old ones to lay down ecocreto. Juan Carlos Wash says fixing the leaky water supply system already sets the city back 20 million US dollars a year. But it's not only the cost that concerns him. Sí, y este, y este producto es, es muy apropiado. We think it's a good product and we've recommended local authorities use it, but it's mostly useful in the south, where the city is growing. Here in the center, it doesn't make any sense because the soil is impermeable. According to Ecocreto developers, that problem can be overcome by drilling holes beneath the pavement to allow water to permeate to the aquifer. But that substantially raises the product's cost. Nestor de Buen believes that any solution to Mexico City's water problems is going to be costly. And he's disappointed that the city isn't using the product on a larger scale. Meanwhile, his company is finding new uses for the product. Currently, they're installing it in golf courses under sand traps. And they've partnered with MBA students from Georgetown University to seek new markets in the U.S. But for de Buen, the inspiration remains his thirsty city. In Mexico, the worst problems are not politicians, which are rather bad, most of them. Not uh, the thieves and, and the, the kidnappers. The worst problem this country has is the lack of water. The Buen knows Ecocreto won't solve Mexico City's water problem single-handedly, but he believes it's at least a partial solution for the water-strapped city. For Living on Earth, I'm Conrad Fox in Mexico City. In New York City, a team of architects and urban planners have figured out how some taken-for-granted real estate could make for a healthier environment. They did it by taking to the streets, rethinking how to use pavement, drainage, utilities, and landscape, and looking at what other cities are doing. They came up with what they say is the right way to use all those public rights of way in an attempt, says team leader Hillary Brown, to put the principles of sustainability to work where the rubber literally meets the road. First off, we notice that cars, surface transit, pedestrians, and bike riders all compete for the right-of-way. But too often, autos win out. So we propose carving out more space for bikers and separating them from cars and walkers with islands and corridors of trees and vegetation. We also found that in many places, wider sidewalks and green outdoor alcoves can entice us out of our cars to stroll, walk to work, and enjoy exercise in comfort and safety. We all appreciate the seasonal colors of trees and other street plantings, but these pockets of nature offer other tangible benefits by removing airborne dirt, producing oxygen, dampening street noise, and keeping the city cool in summer. Some studies even show that the more trees you have on a street, the less crime you have. Creating continuous trenches for these trees can prevent both damage to their roots and cracks in the pavement. Selecting mixed species that are water-efficient and pest-resistant produces healthier plants that need less tending to. And instead of letting polluted rainwater flow into storm sewers, let's direct it onto porous surfaces, such as gravel or open space pavers, or into planted trenches where it can be filtered by roots while refreshing underground aquifers. We also learned that something as simple as the color of concrete or asphalt makes a big difference. Lighter shades of concrete improve visibility at night. By day, it reflects the heat of the sun, reducing summertime temperatures. And a cooler street means less energy is needed for air conditioning. 
This pavement lasts longer, too, and may be an excellent medium for recycling a variety of waste, such as old concrete, glass, or rubber. Open up the street, and you'll find a deep tangle of conduits and pipes. We recommend organizing this messy infrastructure into trenches with removable lids for repairs. Radar can test pipes, and you can drill them with lasers, a practice called microtunneling that allows workmen to make repairs without digging, keeping neighbors happier. Now, these may not sound like grand solutions, but small improvements taken together can make a big difference, simply because so much of our urban environment is paved. The 20,000 lane miles of right-of-way in all of New York City comprise an area as big as Manhattan. All in all, we learned that greening our streets does far more than create a lovely living mosaic of the city's diverse neighborhoods. With better air and water, healthier natural systems, and a more active population, it's a long-term investment in our city's quality of life. Hillary Brown is an architect and principal of the firm New Civic Works, based in Manhattan. For more information on how to green your city, go to our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Coming up, Bill McKibben takes the long way home. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Author Bill McKibben spent three weeks in the summer of 2003 backpacking from the hillsides of Vermont's Champlain Valley through the heights of New York's Adirondack Mountains. And along the way, he met up with locals who helped him scrabble up the hillsides and raft down rivers. They also taught him the meaning of living locally and how they've come to inhabit the wilderness without taming it. Their words of wisdom are chronicled in Bill McKibben's book, Wandering Home, A Long Walk Across America's Most Hopeful Landscape. Bill McKibben, thanks for joining us. Hello, Steve. Now, Bill, you love the wild, but you grew up in the suburbs, I think, around Boston. So what drew you into the wild? In fact, I'm thinking that as a writer, you're kind of like Alistair Cook. You know, you come from one place and you go to another and you tell the story. Well, in a sense, that's true. You know, my um, my my roots are really, are, as a writer, are quite urban. When I left college, I went off to Manhattan and uh, wrote the Talk of the Town column for the New Yorker for five years. And my boast at one point was that I'd been out at every subway stop in New York City. But for a variety of odd reasons, I ended up living in the late 1980s in the Adirondacks in the great wilderness of the East and instantly knew that that's the landscape of my heart in some way. And not only do I love this neck of the woods, I mean, this book really is in certain ways a a love letter for me and a break from my usual um, grim dispatches from the world of large-scale environmental problems. Um, I also think that it's, you know, there's all kinds of beautiful and lovely places and, 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 but what makes this one so interesting to me is this cheek by jowl contrast on, on the Vermont side of the lake, of Lake Champlain, a kind of emphasis on husbandry and on 
cooperation, you know, is sort of evidenced by the town meeting tradition. And in the Adirondacks, the great recovered wilderness of the entire world, an emphasis on a kind of self-restraint, on human beings knowing how to leave some land alone, which seems like a pretty grand thing to me as well. Bill, there's a passage in your book that really sets up your journey. Could, could you read about your time on the peak of Mount Abe? Absolutely. Tonight, a scrim of rain clouds advanced toward me, a gauzy curtain of gray that only made the lake and the mountains behind gleam the shinier. It was clearly about to rain, but the worst of it seemed set to pass just north and south, a slight gap in the line headed toward my perch on Mount Abe. Hearing no thunder, I stayed put. Sure enough, the cloud washed up over me. For a few moments, even as the world turned gray, I could still make out the reflecting mirror of the lake. Finally, it too vanished, and all was gloom. But then, even more quickly than it had descended, the cloud swept through, and behind it the world was created fresh. No scrim now, just the fields, the lake, the peaks. When a double rainbow suddenly appeared, it was almost too much, a Disney overdose of glory. But then a rainbow pillar rose straight into the southern sky, and east of that a vaporous twin appeared, and then a kind of rainbow cloud to the north. Soon, seven rainbows at once. Then the sun reached just the right angle, so that the mist whipping up the face of the peak flashed into clouds of color as it washed over me, a rose cloud, a cloud of green. And always behind it, the same line of lake, the same jag of mountain. All at once it struck me, struck me hard, that this was one of those few scenes I would replay in my mind when I someday lay dying. Up on Mount Abe here, this vision of seven rainbows well, seems like kind of a hard act to follow. Uh, how do you top that? Well, of course, one doesn't... Re- I mean, there'll never be a... a Uh, a moment in my life again when I see seven rainbows at once, I don't think. So that was the aesthetic high point, perhaps. Bill, so much of your book compares the two different kinds of people on on the different sides of Lake Champlain. Um, You have different folks, one lake. What are some of the differences you observed? Well, I mean, the the Adirondacks has been defined by its climate and its harshness. Uh, It's higher up and colder and tougher to farm than Vermont, and so it never successfully was. You can find plenty of stone walls deep back in the woods that show where people tried for one generation to farm that land, but it didn't work. And so, though they're roughly the same size, Vermont and the Adirondacks, uh, the population of Vermont is 600 and some thousand, and the population of the Adirondacks is barely 150,000. And in many ways, you know, once you cross the lake, once you leave New England, you're headed west. You're in the sort of unrulier rest of America. Uh, We're no more, you know, beautiful town greens with white churches, no more town meeting. The look and the feel is is more Appalachian. That has a whole other take on, on how the world might be. Well, let's talk about some of the characters you met along the way in your, your trek here. So let's start with Chris Granstrom. Now, he's a Vermonter who owns this uh, winery near Middlebury College, and he has a pretty practical outlook on, on, on farming, I guess. Tell me a bit about your time with him. Well, I mean, he's, he's a classic example of 
people who are trying to figure out how to make it farming. It's almost impossible to make it farming, growing commodity food. So you got to look for other things. Uh, what he's hit on in recent times is wine grapes. Hard to grow in Vermont, but he went on a website called littlefatwino.com and <laughs> okay. found somebody who was, had these sort of northern varietals, and he's uh, making a go of it. And he's not a romantic about it. You know, I remember talking with him one day and he was saying, look, you know, how am I going to control the weeds under these vines? Well, um, I just talked with one guy who's trying to do it organically. The weeds got a little out of control and now he's taking out pigweed with a chainsaw. Oh my. Um, so what I do is once a year with a backpack sprayer, I put a little bit of Roundup up and down the rows. Monsanto's, now, Monsanto's big evil, nasty company, as he put it. But one of the things that's emerging here are a whole cadre of growers who call themselves ecological or sustainable farmers who don't promise never, ever to use pesticides, but say that, you know, we're your neighbors. We will use these things incredibly sparingly if we have to. And that allows them to grow food on a scale and for a price that can begin to offer them some hope of survival. Now, towards the end of your journey, you meet uh, with Don Armstrong, who's lived in the Adirondacks all his life. Um, how different was his lifestyle compared with those on the Vermont side of the trail? Well, Don is an old friend of mine in the, in the town where I've lived most of my adult life in the Adirondacks. And he'd grown up working in the woods in some of the old lumber camps and then working in the mines, which were the two great economic engines of the Adirondacks before tourism. And so his life was very different from the pastoral life of Vermont. So his uh, set of skills and things was more Western. But his sense of community was very, very strong in a New England way. I mean, he I remember once... We were um, changing the storm windows on the church in town, and he, uh, though he was uh, advanced in years, uh, took me up through this sort of set of jury-rigged ladders and things to see the steeple of the church, and he showed me the place where he'd carved his name 60 years before, along with the initials of his then-girlfriend, now-wife, uh, Velda, and it really gave me the powerful sense of what it meant to be rooted in a particular place. I read a poll the other day that showed that three-quarters of Americans didn't know their next-door neighbor. Well, there's not anyone who lives in uh, Indian Lake or Johnsburg or Tupper Lake or those places who don't know their next-door neighbors because you wouldn't get through the winter if you didn't. Uh, there's still some real dependency on each other, and that's an awfully good thing, I think. Bill McKibben is author of Wandering Home, a long walk across America's most hopeful landscape. Bill, thanks. Thank you, Steve. We've all seen pictures of an underwater coral reef, but do we know what it sounds like? Fish do. And as producer Alan Cockle discovered, some baby fish use the sound to find their way home. Nick Tolomieri is a biologist at the Northwest Fisheries Science Center in Seattle. Standing by the bay where he did his postdoc research, he explains how he recorded and played back the sounds of an underwater reef. So what we did was to go out at night and put a hydrophone in the water by a reef and record 
the noise that comes off a reef, and a reef can be incredibly noisy. Uh, this is just sound recorded off of a reef about an hour or two after sunset, and the noise is mostly um, sea urchins and snapping shrimp. Um, a lot of the pops are probably the snapping shrimp, and both of these things tend to come out at night, and it's actually been called the evening chorus. A lot of marine organisms, especially fish, spend their adult lives on a reef but disperse to the open ocean as babies. Later, these larval fish somehow find their way back to the reef. These little fish larvae that are only, say, a centimeter, two centimeters long, they can actually locate a reef from as far away as a kilometer or two. They seem to know where they are, and they'll avoid reefs during the day, probably because they don't want to be eaten by the bigger fish. To find out how the fish find their way back, Ptolemyeri went fishing at night, playing tapes of underwater reef sound and catching the fish larvae in an illuminated underwater net called a light trap. We put some light traps out with sound equipment and some light traps out without sound equipment and see how many are coming to the ones with sound and the ones without sound. And for the species we've done so far, we've gotten about five times as many reef fish in the ones with sound as we have in the ones without sound. Not only can fish larvae hear extremely well, but they're also good swimmers. Scientists have found that some species, following the siren call of the reef, can swim up to 300 miles without eating or stopping. For Living on Earth, I'm Alan Cockle. Tis the season of summer storms. And while some folks relish all that excitement of crashing thunder and pouring rain, others say their blood runs cold at the first flash of light, especially those who have been hit by lightning. Between 200 and 1,000 people in the U.S. are struck by lightning each year. About 70 of them are killed. Now, one person who lived to tell his tale is Russ Francis. He's a communications worker in Linden, Illinois. We caught him on his cell phone as he was driving home from work. Russ, I hear it's optimal conditions for a conversation like this. Yeah, at the present time, I'm, I'm just ahead of a huge thunderstorm. Uh, I get kind of uh, antsy, I guess, when I see it storming like this. I, I hope this won't spook you too much, but could you tell me the story of when, when you did get struck by lightning? Yes, I, at the time, I, I worked for a communication company, and I was uh, repairing a line, and uh, it was raining out that day, and it had not been storming at all. And uh, I just had finished up the case of trouble that I was working on and, and shut the closure up, and uh, I was on the ground, and uh, just had stood up, and I remember seeing the flash came out my right hand, and the noise was something I can't even explain how loud the noise is. It's the loudest thing that I've ever experienced or heard or, or whatever. And I remember getting half thrown back, and the next thing I remember was uh, trying to get back into my truck, and the at the time, it, it blew out the two-way radios that I had in our truck. I had no feeling at all on my right side. It was just about like I'd had a stroke. Wow. So this thing hits you. You see this flash come out of your hand, and then did it knock you out? Did you have to, did you have to wake up? I don't up? think I was ever completely knocked out. I, I know I was super stunned and sat there and went, got in, got in my, my, uh, my van and... I had a headset there where I could have went back and, and connected on and tried to call for help, and I thought, I'm not getting back out in this. Uh, so I uh, I ended up driving myself back into the office, which was about two and a half miles away. From there, my uh, my boss took me into the uh, emergency room with that. 
Now you had some symptoms. You like your whole right side was weak, and you lost your hearing. How how long do those symptoms last? Well, I was off work for about three and a half years. For probably the first two years, I slept between twenty and twenty-two hours a day. Uh, it just zapped every bit of energy there was out of me. Uh, I have I still have terrible headaches. I had a lot of uh, trouble with dizziness and that. Uh, at the University of Illinois Chicago Hospital, they did a functional MRI and they found out the one side of my brain had uh, pretty much got sizzled by it. So, literally fried the brain, huh? Yep. But you're doing okay. You sound yeah, okay. I'm back to work. I, I, they uh, told me I'd never be back to work. I'm back to work. And the other side, I guess, is uh, taking care of the of the side that's uh, been damaged. So, we're we're living life as well as we can. Now, now, what kind of reactions did you get from family and friends? I, I understand that uh, a lot of times people have a hard time believing people who say they've been hit well, by the lightning. Well, the biggest thing is 95% of the people, you have no burns or no marks on them. And I was one of those. That You have no, no physical things. They look at and you say, well, you look okay. You look healthy. And at the time, I couldn't walk across the room without being exhausted. And I, it, it gets kind of aggravating that way when, when people look at you in that regard. So, I mean, you don't have an arm blown off or you, you're not uh, sizzled like a uh, overdone hot dog. So they think you, you should be okay. Well, you're not. Now, do you have any advice for me? It's the summer season. And uh seems to me that the, the thunder and lightning storms come this time of year, the hazy, hot, and humid weather. What would you advise me to do? I guess one of the things that bothers me is if I see a coach trying to get that one more inning in or one more batter up or, or something like that or one more playoff or get one more hole in, it can change your life, and it's not worth it. And so what if I'm all of a sudden caught out in the middle of it and it seems like, oh, wow, this is definitely lightning time. Anything I can you do? Get yourself in an enclosed structure uh, like a building uh, with sides on it and preferably something that's got uh, wiring in it or whatever uh, – like a park shelter or a tent is not a good place to be. Under a tree is one of the terrible places to be. A car is okay. It's not a, the best place to be, but it's better than being out in the open. So right now, are you still out running the storm? No, I pulled over right now so we could have a decent cell phone conversation, but it, it, the storm is catching up to me. Well, I guess you better get a move on that. Tell your people, though, if you hear it, fear it. If you see it, flee it. Good advice. Russell Francis works in the communications business in Linden, Illinois. Coming up, if they ever held a popularity contest for birds, there's one that would surely lose. The story of the much maligned magpie is just ahead. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. and songbirds can do it. Dolphins and bats can too. Now, researchers have found imitation is also a form of communication for elephants. Collaborating scientists in Kenya and Massachusetts recorded the vocalizations of two African elephants from two very different backgrounds. What they heard was nothing like that of the trumpeting call of the average African elephant. Calamero, a 23-year-old male, was raised in a zoo with two Asian elephants for 18 years. Scientists found most of his vocalizations resembled the chirping noises typical of its Asian zoo mates, rather than the deeper calls of his African ancestors. They say this mimicking might be his way of fitting in with a social group. 
Also, a 10-year-old female, Malaika, lived on the Savannah Plains of Kenya with orphaned elephants two miles from a busy highway. The majority of Malaika's calls sounded less like an elephant and more like the revving of a truck engine. Researchers believe Malaika learned to imitate her highway friends at night, when the sounds of passing trucks dominated the landscape. It's the first time this mimicking trait has been found among these huge mammals, suggesting upbringing could shape their vocal repertoire. These skills may also help elephants recognize each other and bond as part of a group. That's this week's note on Emerging Science. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support. On the web at Kresge.org. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in children, their families, and their communities on the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Many of us look to the natural world for clues to living a more harmonious, sustainable life. For instance, we aspire to those traits in animals we value, the wisdom of the owl, the noble bearing of the eagle, the grace of the swan. But producer Guy Han wonders what nature is trying to teach us when it starts acting like some pushy, poorly socialized uncle. You know, the one with a loud voice who moves in uninvited and threatens to eat everything in sight. Ah, it's springtime in the Rockies when a black-billed magpie's thoughts turn to love. And as you can hear, that's a noisy time of year. There's the courting, nest-building, egg-laying, followed by the defending of the new family against every dog, cat, raccoon, garden tool, lawn chair, and child in its territory. All of it accompanied by the magpie's call, which is not exactly the bird world's sweetest. Add to that a few other disconcerting traits, and magpies plunge pretty much to the bottom of the list of birds we Westerners love. I don't know anybody that likes magpies. To wake up every morning to screeching magpies. I'm not sure I would hate them as much if it weren't for the fact that so many other people seem to hate them. We're fighting a war offense. War against who? Against birds. Okay, that last bit is from the Hitchcock movie, The Birds, but it captures the mood. In Bodega Bay early this morning, a large flock of crows attacked a group of children who were leaving... Crows, who play a starring role in The Birds, are related to magpies and both belong to a whole family of unpopular birds. Kevin McGowan of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Well, the family Corvidae encompasses about 100 species, more or less. About half of them are crows and ravens, the big black guys. And then the other half are things like uh, the jays and the magpies. McGowan believes that our dislike of the Corvid family is rooted in European history. A lot of cultures around the world actually like crows and ravens and revere them as, you know, part of their creator myth and things like that. But in, in Europe and in Western European society that's, that's influenced North America a lot, they tend to have a bad reputation. They're birds of ill omen. Um, they're birds of bad luck and disease and things like that. And basically that comes from the fact, I think, that uh, there were no vultures in Europe and that it was the crows and ravens and magpies that were the scavengers. 
After a big battle or a nasty plague, the Corvids had the unsavory habit of swooping down on fallen victims and pecking their eyes out. Then to add to that, the crows and ravens at least are black. And that again was a negative sort of association for Western European thought, as black as he is the color of evil and all that sort of thing. Think Edgar Allan Poe. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. A century ago, magpies had a bounty on their heads. 150,000 were killed for cash in Idaho alone. Today, our cultural distaste for corvids is still codified in American law. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act only protects magpies, crows, and a few other unloved birds if they reform their evil ways. According to Rex Salabanks of Idaho Fish and Game, it's legal to control them if they peck at your screen door, eat Fifi's dog food, go for the cherry tree. Or, and this is the interesting part, when concentrated in such numbers and manner as to constitute a health hazard or other nuisance. And uh, the main way that you can control them, obviously, is to shoot them. You're not supposed to blast magpies within city limits, but other than that, the law is loose. And so it's kind of like, what well, does it have that look in its eye, you know? <laughs> like it's up to no good and it's about to do something uh, that's bad. Some people would say it always has that look in its eye. Hear, Hear that? That was a rooster. That was a pheasant rooster and he's right over there. J.D. and his black lab are walking through his hunting preserve in southern Idaho. Did you hear that rooster? Yeah. But there was one in right over here and there's one over there. There's just a tremendous amount of pheasants here and we have a lot of quail and we have lots of ducks here. We have geese that nest here. There's lots of wild birds though here too. There's killdeer, red-winged blackbirds, herons. J.D. loves birds, just not magpies. Although various magpie species can be found in numerous parts of the world, the American magpie lives exclusively in the western U.S. And this expanse of high desert has the densest concentration of magpies on Earth. J.D. thinks that density threatens his other birds. Look at the baby ducks. See them in the water there? Yeah. There's three baby ducks there. Now, magpies will go after them if they're on land. They'll just wait until those eggs or babies just get right, and then they'll swoop down on them and eat them up. That's all they do. That's why he's carrying a 12-gauge shotgun, just in case he catches a magpie in the act of raiding a game bird's nest. And it's not just the act of depredation that bothers J.D. and plenty of other people. It's the seemingly devious way magpies kill other birds. Yeah, they usually travel in groups, and I've seen them where... Like if you have a bunch of quail and they've got their little babies, one or two of the birds will distract the quail, the adults, and then another two magpies will come in behind and swoop down and pick up the, the baby quail. They'll team hunt sort of like a pack of coyotes or wolves. A few minutes later, J.D. spots a magpie in the act. Oh. Got him! Woo! First magpie. He picks up the limp bird and holds it hanging by the tail. They're a pretty bird. I mean, they're handsome. They're always dressed in a tuxedo and ready to party. Magpie, a bird on a wire, am I? 
Magpies are iridescent black and blue and creamy white with a long, showy tail. By Corvid standards, they are beautiful birds. But still, people think they look flat-out evil. And magpies don't mind taking that dark side into town. Look, there's one right there. Right there, there's a magpie nest. Do you see it? Right by our porch. My neighbors, Dave Peterson and his wife, Mary Lou Taylor, live in Idaho's biggest city, Boise, where they're worried the magpies are taking over. Dave and Mary Lou count six magpie nests from where they stand in their backyard. So maybe Mary Lou's theory that there are... A few jillion more well, magpies uh, than last year. But how? But how, I don't know if there are a few jillion more, but... How many robin nests are in the same vicinity? Well, see, that's the thing that I think is that the magpies are driving out the other birds. Dave and Mary Lou are generally pretty sane, law-abiding citizens, but magpies have got them fantasizing revenge. So Mary Lou wants to start a magpie eradication program, and she has some real clever ideas for uh, getting rid of these magpie nests, I might add. What are they? Well, her best idea is to have me hone up on my archery skills and then get a uh, flaming arrow and shoot it into the magpie nests. We checked with the uh, fire department and they frown upon this. Neither Dave and Mary Lou are serious about their eradication program, but plenty of others are. People routinely shotgun magpie nests, pull them out of trees, light them on fire, or grab the eggs and crush them. Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. (laughs) That would hardly be possible. Why not, Mrs. Bundy? Because there are 8,650 species of birds in the world today, Mr. Carter. The five continents of the world... Kill them all, get rid of them, messy animals. ...probably contain more than 100 billion birds. It's the end of the world. Yeah, that's from the birds, too. My point being that it's really hard to untangle fable, in this case film, from scientific fact when it comes to magpies, corvids, and, well, nature in general. Kevin McGowan of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology says all this magpie-directed malevolence is misplaced. Partly it's because some of the things that we see them do we don't like, and we don't have a sense of how important that is to the whole grand scheme of things. So we see them come in and take a robin nest, you know, eat the babies, and we're all upset by that. And we think of them as these nasty thieves kind of thing. Well, in fact, they're not thieves. They're, they're just trying to raise their own young. In fact, one study found that songbird populations actually increased as the number of magpies grew in the area. McGowan believes we label magpies and other corvids as wanton killers simply because they are big, obvious birds, and when they do something we find distasteful, we notice it, whereas lots of unexpected predators in nature sneak by unnoticed. As studies recently have been putting cameras on bird nests and seeing who it is that's actually coming in and eating those eggs and and babies, what we're finding is it's predominantly squirrels. Squirrels? And McGowan says nest cams have caught another unlikely suspect. Deer eat a lot of eggs and nestlings of ground-nesting birds. I tell you, I didn't expect that. But it's not just a question of them accidentally breaking eggs as they're cropping grass either. There's video of them actually chasing down little fledglings that are trying to run away from the nest and grabbing them and, and gulping them down. Hi, you Bambi! Bambi too? Watch what I can do! 
Scientists say magpies are way down the list of animals that eat baby birds. But like it or not, our view of nature is informed not only by biology, but by everything from Beowulf and the Bible to the birds and Bambi. We try to understand nature, like everything else, through stories. We cast animals in the roles of hero and villain, often unconsciously, then push them off on a narrative adventure we hope will end in just, morally satisfying ways. When nature doesn't follow the script, we often react with anger or fear. Are the birds going to eat us, Mommy? Well, maybe we're all getting a little carried away by this. Watching a magpie pull a baby bird out of its nest, even when we tell ourselves it's part of nature, is nevertheless unsettling. Why are they doing this? It whispers the possibility of a cold, uncaring universe, a natural world less teacher than tormentor. So we often try to rewrite the script to save the baby bird and sentence the murderous magpie to death. They'll be all around here. Yeah, they'll be down. Someone will be on the gravestone. Someone will be right here pecking at the magpie. Chuck Trost has spent 20 years trying to read nature's story from a magpie's perspective. A retired professor of ornithology at Idaho State University, he's the nation's leading expert on magpies. And when he asked me to meet him in a cemetery so he can perform a magpie funeral, I'm glad to hear I'm not to play the role of the dearly departed. All right, well, I've got a dead magpie here, and, uh, and I just put it on the ground in the cemetery, and uh, we're going to go back and sit in the car and see what happens. Uh, what I predict will happen is that a magpie will notice it and start calling. And the effect of that is it draws other magpies in. Magpies will come in from across the river and all around here, and, uh, and they'll be in the trees and they'll be down looking at this dead magpie. So it's kind of an intense thing that goes on for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then they leave. Trost hopes his so-called magpie funeral will give me a taste of what he's discovered in his two decades of study, that magpies are surprisingly intelligent, complex creatures. He says they have a well-defined social hierarchy. They're monogamous, but they also allow for divorce. They'll defend their chicks against animals many times their own size, and they might even have a sense of humor. I've seen a merlin uh, actually attacking magpies, a flock of magpies, and you just have to laugh to watch it because the magpies would dive into a bush and the merlin would take off and start to leave and one of them would chase it. And they turn around and drive that magpie right into the bush again. And it, it's happened like 10 times, over and over again. Uh, and I think they were just, you know, they're using this Merlin to show off. So fascinating things you can see if you just have enough patience to watch. Trost thinks we'd all learn to love magpies if we were patient enough to watch them for a while. As we talk, magpies gather in the trees above the dead bird, calling, then begin gliding down and gathering around the corpse itself. One tentatively pulls at the tail, and when there's no response, backs off and simply stands there. Trost has an explanation for all this. It's probably trying to see what killed it. And mostly I think what it is, they're trying to see who it is, because they know each other. Magpies know each other. And whenever there's a dead magpie, that means there's an opening in the social system. And if you're a submissive magpie, you can move up one notch. As a scientist, Trost can't speculate on the magpie's capacity to mourn. 
But watching these birds standing there among the gravestones, dressed in funereal black and white plumage, I can't help but wonder if there's some kind of spiritual spark glowing in those complicated little corvid skulls. If we're so quick to assign the worst human traits to magpies, can't we allow them just a little room for reverential reflection? It seems only fair. Who's to say magpies aren't contemplating the nature of life and death like us? Maybe they're just a little noisier about it. For Living on Earth, I'm Guy Hand. Ornithology happens to be my avocation. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind, rather, who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. Now, if it were not for birds... you don't seem to understand. This young lady said there was an attack on the school. Impossible. on Living on Earth, in the semi-arid region of South Africa, known as the succulent Karoo, seasons of drought have led to failed crops. Scientists predict there could be more dry spells on the way and also extreme rains. In one area, they're working with a group of rooibos tea farmers to help them adapt their growing practices to these changes in climate. We're trying to marry the scientific knowledge with the indigenous knowledge, which there's a great body of and trying to integrate that. Farming adaptations to climate change on the next Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a few notes from a bird much sweeter than the magpie. Phil Riddett recorded these two nightingales in a forest near Kent, England. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom, Kelly Cronin, and James Kerwood. Our interns are Tobin Hack and Allison Smith. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.